Now, that has started. So, <laughs> so let's get back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men, man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing, not anything taken away from it. God has done it, so the people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. I don't know if everybody, uh, I used to wear shirts, I don't know if you can, everybody can see my shirt, I got a new shirt on, my daughter Angel made, my daughter Angel made this shirt for me, get my camera angle right, vote for Pedro, hey, if you don't know what that is, you need to Google it, and you need to <laughs> go watch that movie, uh, but anyway, that has nothing to do with Ecclesiastes, at least I don't think at the moment. So uh, let's begin with this uh, with this passage because it seems like Solomon, you know, he, he had ended uh, chapter two with this whole idea of, of the toil of man and the vanity of it. Uh, but he also had given us this kind of uh, oasis of hope because he mentioned God as it related to this toil and found we found that, hey, this, this is part of what God intends for man to do. The be is part of God's created order before the fall that men ought to, women ought to, humanity rather, ought to uh, work and enjoy that work and work in a way that brings glory and honor to him and in so doing we find fulfillment in work and don't forget that's really what is the driving force of what's going on in Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes uh, Solomon is not it's not as pessimistic as it sounds because Solomon the Kohelet the preacher the, the assembler who is instructing those who he has gathered together is trying to get us get them get us to contemplate this thought about mean, the meaning of life. Can we find fulfillment in life merely under the sun? If you remember, we talk about it with this idea of taking taking uh, a temporal, earthly perspective of it and then removing God from the other side of the equation. And if that's all that life is and there is no God, there is no eternity, then it is futile. It is meaningless. It is vain. It is empty. Eat, drink, and be merry before for tomorrow you die. But Solomon is pressing us to come to this conclusion, which he'll ultimately come to um, in, in chapter 12. He gives us hints all along the way. And tonight, in this section, we're going to have a hint of this, um, this hope that he's given us in finding meaning in life in our relationship with God and living for God and serving, serving God. So that, that's where Solomon's driving us to consider that in life, the only way to really find true meaning in what's happening around us in this temporal world that we live in is to have a personal relationship with God. And from our perspective, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, because he has been revealed to us as the, the God man in the new Testament. Prior to this, they were looking toward the promise that God had given to uh, Abraham or even the proto-angelion in Genesis chapter 3 where the woman's seed would bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. And so that was, that was a foreshadowing of the promised Messiah who was going to come to rectify the curse that came because of the fall of man, because of sin. And so everything else in the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 on is the unfolding of this coming Messiah, this coming one. And we see the manifestation of this coming one in in the New Testament, what we understand as the New Testament. Um, and uh, in Friendship Baptist Church, we're in, chapter, we're, in, we're in the Gospel of John on Sunday morning, and we, we are still in the prologue. We hit verse 14 today in verse 14 uh, is a very powerful verse that speaks of the reality of the incarnation of Christ and you can go find that uh, 
sermon. It's on my podcast, Arcane Ministries, so you can find it wherever podcasts are found. Forgot to mention that. We're going to put this on the podcast as well, so go find that. Spotify, Apple uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, Google. Uh, you, you can find that podcast. You go like it, subscribe to it, uh, and leave comments and share it with other people so that they can get, get involved and we inc- can increase the audience there as well. But uh, in that uh, chapter, chapter one, we're dealing with the incarnation of Christ, and we know from other places in the Bible, Hebrews, whatever, uh, the Bible tells us that he is the exact representation of the Father. So Solomon, uh, God has revealed himself to us, and Solomon is, is helping us understand that, that the only way we can find true and lasting meaning in life is as a, in a relationship with God. And from the re- revelation of the New Testament, that relationship comes through uh, faith in, in Jesus Christ. And so he begins this chapter with that same thing he left off on in uh, chapter 2, this idea of what is the whole purpose of the toil of, toil of man. What what is what is the gain from this toil that we do on a daily basis? It's never ending, and you know from chapter two he made the conclusion, hey, it's vanity. But then he comes back around. It's where we find that oasis of hope that we found in chapter two when he says, hey, but God is sovereign, and this work that we do is a work that God has gifted us to do. It's a work that God has called us to do. Listen to what he said in chapter two, verses twenty-two and twenty-five. He says, what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? He says, for all his days are full of sorrow and his uh, work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So here he introduces this idea. So it's not that he's atheist and he's just running through life merely from a humanistic perspective, a secular humanistic perspective without any idea of God. No, he's ultimately driving us to understand that without God, there is no true meaning in life. And here he gives us that that foreshadowing of what his ultimate conclusion is going to be, that this is from the hand of God. And for apart from him, meaning God, who can eat or who can who can have enjoyment? Well, the answer is no one can eat or drink or have enjoyment apart from God. So, Solomon is not excluding God from this equation. He's trying to, to trying to get us to understand that it's only with God in in this equation that we can find true uh, meaning. Uh, in life, even in the toil that we have, that sometimes seems so mundane and meaningless in life, it is with a relationship with God that that toil in and of itself finds finds meaning. And he continues this theme of of this oasis of hope in this section of scripture. Nine times in verses uh, 9 through 15, he mentions God, either directly using God's name or one of God's names or using a pronoun to uh, that's added to to identify God as the subject. So God is at least addressed or identified nine times in in these few verses that we are reading tonight. So we know that Solomon has in his mind that God is the answer and that a relationship with God and working in light of the existence of God is the only way to find true hope and lasting meaning in life. So it begins in verse 10. Uh, with this first mention of God in this section. It says, I have seen the business that God has given. Don't miss that, right? Right off the bat, he's reminding us of the sovereignty of God. Who gave the business? Well, it's God who gave the business. It's God who gave us the business of toil. It's God who gave us the, the, the life that we have. So it is the sovereign hand of God that is at work in the children of men, as he goes on to say in verse 10. It is, it, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man, to be busy with. And then you remember in the poem we read last time, there's a time for everything. And in that poem, there's this uh, list of opposites, right? Life and death and, and so forth and so on in, uh, in, in, in that poem. And so uh, Solomon is saying to us, Listen, here's the conclusion of everything. Yes, there, there's, there's ups and downs in life, right? There's living and there's dying in life. But God has made everything, as he says in the first part of verse 11, beautiful in its time. Now, 
again, that, that includes the creation. You remember at the end of Genesis, God said, uh, or at the end of creation narrative in Genesis, God says that everything he made, everything he saw, he saw that it was very good. So God made all things in that creative sense in, 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 in a good way, in a beautiful way. But it's not limited to merely the creation that God made in the beginning before the fall. Listen to what Philip Ryken says in his commentary related to this uh, part of the verse. He says, he, meaning Solomon or Koheleth, is not just talking about God's creative act, but about the way he has ruled it ever since. The seasons of nature, the patterns of human activity are under his sovereign superintendence and providential care. From beginning to end, God does everything with decency and order. And in that sense, God has made a beautiful creation that works according to his beautiful plan that he made. The seasons come as they are supposed to come, and they do the things that they are supposed to do to sustain life, to promote life on this planet. And so God, in his sovereignty, created and sustains this world, and everything in it has its place and has its time. And in that sense, it is the beauty of the created order of God that sustains the life we have on this planet. Yes, flawed planet now because of sin, but even in this flawed planet because of sin, the thorns and thistles, right? Even in that, in the, in, in the light of the fallenness of humanity and the curse that came upon this earth because of sin, God still sustains it in a very beautiful way, in, in the systematic way at which it go, this, this world and this universe continues to exist and sustain life for you and for me. Listen to what Derek Kidner uh, says in relation to this as well. He says, The kaleidoscope movement of uh, innumerable processes, each with its own character, its own period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time, and contributing to the overall masterpiece, which is the work of one creator. That's what I think Solomon is saying to us, that God has created everything beautiful, made everything beautiful in its time. Not just in the, the creative act, but in his continued sustaining of life on this planet through the processes that he has set forth and that he sustains to allow us to continue to exist as a people. And then Solomon goes on in verse 11. The second, second phrase in verse 11 is also he has put eternity into man's heart. Now, it depends on your translation here, because there are some dis differences in opinion on how this Hebrew should be translated. And as I've told you, I'm not, a, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I can only tell you what I read from, from other people. I'm more comfortable with Greek than I am Hebrew, and not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination either. But in the, if you got a King James Version... Your King James Version says that he has put the world into the, the hearts of men. If, you've got, uh, if you look at the Lexham English Bible, it says that he has put the past in the hearts of man. If you look at the New English Translation, it says that he has put ignorance in the heart of man. And then we have the ESV that I, I read from today, that he has put eternity in the hearts of man. And the, the the semantic domain of this word in the Hebrew, uh, holam, I think it is, or olam, O-L-A-M is the transliteration in the English, but it, it, it has in it all of those aspects of past and, you know, the history of the world uh, are an endless concept of time from past to future. And so, it, it could be, depending on the context, any one of those things. And a lot of people argue because of the next phrase in, in chap, chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, yet so that, he's put this, as the ESV says, he put eternity in the hearts of man, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. <clears throat> and so, it, it's kind of like this, that... It seems as though 
that Solomon is saying to us, I think two things. One, that there is this sense of eternity, that there's more, right? That there's more to this time and space that we live in. That there is this sense that there's something other and beyond just because of what we see in creation, because of this you know, this longing that has been put in our heart for something more, right? And so in that sense, he's, he's, he's telling us that. But I also think that there is a plausible aspect of it that there is this, this dimming and blinding and inability of, of our mental capacity to grasp the completely whatever this other is, whatever this longing is, uh, in our finite mind, in our fleshly mind, because we can't fully wrap our minds around what it is. And again, I think Solomon is helping us understand that, hey, it takes more than an earthly, finite mind, a temporal mind, to grasp the concept of what I'm trying to point you to. You have to have God to help unravel these things. And I think even Paul uh, reminds us of that, even for those who are believers. He says, we, we, we like, we're like men who see in a mirror dimly, right? Uh, we, 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 we see uh, you know, a dim or distorted picture of reality, so to speak, and we won't clearly see the full truth of everything until that day that we are, are, are that our salvation and our glorification is fully realized. That not only is our soul redeemed, but our body is redeemed, and we get our brand new body, and we stand face to face with our Lord. And in that moment, we will know even as we are known. So I think both of those aspects are in this are wrapped up in this idea. And uh, you know, some people may argue with that, but that that's kind of the way I. I take what Solomon is trying to tell us because I think he's trying to push us to understand that the only way we can really find this meaning is in God. He, he's the only one who ultimately has the truth. And it, it may be in the eschaton before we find the full meaning of that, of that truth. But there is this sense in us that there is something more, right? I, I like, uh, listen to what uh, Augustine said or Augustine, uh, said, it, it was, uh, somebody described it as his, as his maxim. He says, you have made, meaning God, us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find peace in you. And others, you know, missionaries and, and uh, people like that have gone into these uh, indigenous places where, uh, you know, the gospel has never been before, and they find in all of those places very similar rituals and ideas about eternal life in some way uh, to help people get to eternal life. Although, you know, pagan and veiled and not fully realized of the truth of Jesus Christ, they have this idea and this concept that there is something other. And listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He described it like this. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He goes on to say, the sweetest thing in all of my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. And again, I think that's where Solomon's trying to drive us. The ultimate beauty comes from the creator, God. And it's in him that we find the answers and the value and the beauty and, and the fulfillment and the meaning of life. And so he goes on to describe this longing to find where this beauty came from, C.S. Lewis does. He says, it's like trying to find the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And so we are like that. We are pilgrims in this foreign land looking for a country that we have not seen fully yet. We are longing to go to a country um, that is not this country, that is our home, and that is ultimately the, the physical revelation of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. So in all of our hearts, there's this idea of something other. But there is this concept of a blindness upon humanity so that they can't fully understand without God's help. They can't fully understand who he is and what he has done from the beginning to the end, as the second part of or the third part of verse 11 says. And uh, there, there's some there's some passages in Scripture in the New Testament that help us understand that as well. 
You know, one of those is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, where it talks about God's wrath being revealed. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So God has made himself known in the creation about us so much so that men are without excuse and the idea that they know there's a God that they ought to be worshiping. And one of the things we do because we love darkness rather than light, as John tells us in John chapter, uh, John chapter three, um, that we suppress the truth that we do see around us. And so in that sense, it's a blindness that we bring upon ourselves by suppressing the truth. But there's also this, this blindness and lack of understanding because of the innate sinfulness in our, in our, um, in our being. Because of the fall. And I think Paul, Paul again, this is Luke quoting Paul, who's preaching at, uh, in Athens at the Areopagus um, on Mars Hill to the, to the philosophers there. And in the middle of that sermon, Paul makes this statement in Acts chapter 17, in verses 26 through 27. He says, For one, from one man, meaning Adam, he, meaning God, made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth. And this is the profound part of it. Determining their set times. In other words, he determined where you're going to be born and when you were going to be born, or at least when you were going to be born. And then this one is where you're going to be born. And the fixed limits of the place where they would live. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the sovereign hand of God at work. That's exactly what we're going to get to at the end of this section tonight with Solomon. But listen to what Paul says. He puts these people in these places. He puts you and me in these places, in these times, for a particular reason. Look at verse 27. So that they would search for God. Kind of sounds like what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He's put eternity in our heart. We know there's something more, right? We see the evidence around us that there's there's something more. And our heart desires to know what that more is so that they would search for God and perhaps, listen to this, this is where the, the blindness and the dimming comes in because we're like blind men in the darkness trying to find and it takes God to open our eyes like Paul, God removed the scales from the eyes of Paul. Uh, perhaps he puts them in this time and in this place, perhaps uh, so they can find God and perhaps groping around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So Paul kind of makes the same argument that, hey, there is something in us. God puts us where he puts us, in the time he puts us, in the place that he puts us, so that we can seek out and search for God. But we are searching as blind men, groping around, trying to feel for him. Uh, And it takes the revelation of God, the regeneration of God, to open our eyes, to remove the blinders so that we can fully, uh, that we can fully see, see him. Again, Riken in his commentary says about this aspect of verse 11, Whereas God has com- has a complete view, all we have is a point of view. And again, that man, that, that's a powerful perspective that you and I need to grasp. We, <coughs> excuse me, we are but a blip on the timeline of history, and a very small blip on the timeline of history. Whereas God sees the beginning and the ending. He knows all things. He sees all things. And all we, all that we can see is the moment in which we are living. We, we know a little bit of what happened yesterday, right? But we soon forget. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, although we plan and desire and map out what we would like to happen. The only thing we know for sure is the instant in which we live. God sees everything. All at one time, he is transcendent and eternal in that way, although he interacts in time and space. So God has a full view of everything, past and future, and all we have is a point of view, and a singular point of view uh, at that. Our limited perspective is unable to span the mind of God. And boy, that's the most understated phrase in all the uh, truth and all the, uh, the, the lesson tonight, right? We, we can't understand the mind of God. But God will help us when we come to faith in him to the best of our ability in this limited, finite, frail body that we live in to be able to understand the truth of who he is and what he has done through the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we go on to verse 12. It's 
and, and really verses 12 and 13 go together and 14 and 15 really kind of go together although 15 you could you could make a separate point out of but in 12 and 14 Solomon comes to a conclusion he, he makes he makes an observation okay uh, and he makes a determination or, or you know about uh, or an inference that he he makes from this perception that he has he says I perceived that there is nothing better for them meaning humanity or man uh, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live so we got we got this limited concept of time we're, we're bound by time we we live in the rat race of time but we only live in the in the instant of time in which we we currently stand and what he is saying is in that instant of time in which you live, then what you ought to do is to be joyful and to do good as long as God gives you breath in the time that you exist on this planet. And that's the conclusion that he comes to. Listen to what he says in verse 13. This is why you should be joyful and do good. And so that's why I say Solomon is not trying to go through life without God, Solomon is trying to drive us to God to help us understand that that's the only way we can live a joyful life and do good is to have this relationship with God. So he starts again in verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. And we talked about that in the last section, chapter not last section, but in the last section, chapter 2, as he talks about this idea of toil, and he brings God into the equation, as is, this is, this is how you find joy in your toil, when you labor uh, as unto the Lord, as the New Testament tells us. And I think he's bringing the same thing uh, to the table here, because he ends this section, verse 13, he ends it with, this is God's gift to man. What? This, this toil that he's given us is his gift to us. You remember? Work is not a part of the curse. Work was before the curse. In Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3, uh, Genesis chapter 2, we see that God planted a garden and he put man in the garden. And he tells him before the fall, hey, you, you tend this garden, right? You be fruitful and multiply. So God's intention was for them to work and to labor in, in the garden. Excuse me. That was pre. That was pre uh, fall. So part of God's created order is for us to labor, and we see the same thing in the giving of the law, right? Because God tells us in the giving of the law in in, in the fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why? Because uh, He says you shall work. You know, six six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you shall rest. And he gives us the reason why. The reason is that God, in six days, created the earth and the universe, the everything, everything that's in it. And then he ceased from his labor on the seventh day. And a lot we can say about that as it relates to creation, God created literally in six days. That is the understanding, the implication of the fourth commandment. That's why you cannot believe in millions of years uh, or, or evolution. Uh, I'd say it that way. You can't believe in evolution or millions of years. I don't believe uh, because of the fourth commandment. Because the fourth commandment demands a 24-hour hour day in the creation narrative in, in Genesis. So, uh, moving on from that. Uh, work is God's gift. It's a part of the created order. It's God's gift to us. So we ought to work, and we ought to work and, and work in such a way that we have a joyful life and, a, and do good because we're doing it unto the Lord. We're doing it because it's God's gift to us to do. And so we're honoring God in being a productive and fruitful uh, laborer uh, for our employer. And, and we are joyful in our life and we do good because of God and the relationship we have with him. Life is God's gift to us and all the things that come with life are from the hand of God. You are not here by accident, as Paul reminded us in Acts chapter 17. You are in the place you're in. You were born in the place you were born in the limits and boundaries of your existence. Whatever they may have been in your life, those have been predetermined by God. So, he gives us this list. We ought to be joyful. In the little time that we have on this earth, we ought to be joyful. And listen, there is no joy apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
You cannot have true, lasting joy in this life apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, he tells us to do good. Guess what? You're not good. I'm not good. There's only one who is good, and that is God. But the only way that we can do good is to have that relationship with God, to be redeemed, regenerated, to be born again, have our old nature changed, right? Mortify the old nature and have the new nature. We are new creatures in Christ, right? And in Christ, we can, for the first time in our life, do good. As a matter of fact, Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, 8 through 10, really, uh, 8 through 10, yes, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We all know that passage. But he goes on to say that we are created in God for good works, right? We are his workmanship to do good works that he created beforehand. That's my paraphrase of verse 10. But God desires for us to do good works. But the only way we can do that is through the regeneration that comes through grace and faith in having a relationship with Jesus Christ. <coughs> then he says... Live life, right? Eat. At the end of that verse, he says, eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil. Live your life to the full in honor of God. And it's, again, it's only in Christ that we can live life and live it to its full. What did Jesus say? I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Yes, there's an eschatological aspect of that, that one day in the eschaton, uh, when we are, when our salvation is complete, Christ comes again, new heaven, new earth, new body, all, the whole nine yards, the whole nine yards, abundant life in that sense. But Jesus intends for us to have abundant life now, and that abundant life only comes because of our relationship with him, because we find ourselves satisfied with Jesus. And then we can talk like, David talks in Psalm 23, hey, that the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want, right? Why is it that he doesn't want? It's because the Lord's his shepherd. He's satisfied with the shepherd, right? The shepherd provides for him. No matter what's going on in his life, the shepherd, shepherd takes care of him and he finds satisfaction and fulfillment in the shepherd, even in the face of death, right? The valley of the shadow of death. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. How can you live like that in a world that is full of brokenness and, and death and sin and catastrophe and, you know, one trauma after another trauma? The only way you can live in the fullness and the joy of life is having a relationship with God and find your satisfaction in him and not your satisfaction in this world. There's nothing in this world that can feel the, the longing and desire that you have in your heart. It's only God. God is the only one who can give true fulfillment and give you what you need in life to live a joyful, full life that is marked by doing good in honor of God. It only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ and take pleasure in whatever it is that God has given you to do with your hand, your labor, right? Do it as unto the Lord and you will find joy even in your labor, the most mundane of labor that you may do. <coughs> Excuse me. So, moving on to 14. This is the second perception that Solomon or Kohelith has in this section. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. So he's bringing in this idea of the sovereignty of God. Nothing can be added to it. Whatever God does. Now, whatever God does includes everything that God does, right? Whatever God does, nothing can be added to it. It's going to last forever. And nothing can be taken from it. You, you and I cannot change what God is going to do. Because what God has done and what God is going to do will endure forever. It cannot be changed. And, and that's an important uh, implication that you and I need to understand as it relates to our relationship with him and even our prayer life, right? Because I can't manipulate God to change his, change his mind about things. Because God already knows what he's going to do. He's already predetermined everything that he's going to do. He has a plan. And he's unfolding that plan in, in history today. So I can't manipulate God into doing what I want him to do. Because he already knows what he's wanting to do. But I can go to God because he's the only one can do what I'm asking him to do. And I trust that he will do what is right. Right? He is the judge of all the earth. And will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. Absolutely. 100% of the time. I come to him believing that he is and that he is able to do what I ask him to do, right? That, that's how I come to God. 
And I trust him to do that. And I want his will to be done and not my will to be done. We talked about that in Sunday school uh, this morning. And that's the way we need to come to our prayer life. Lord, this is how I feel. This is what I think. These are my plans. These are my desires. But just as our Savior prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but yours be done. That, that's what I need to, that's what I want to happen, Lord, is your will to be done. And help me to understand what your will is and help me to be satisfied with your, with your will and your sovereign will over time and eternity. So, uh, listen, listen to some passages of, that help augment this idea of the uh, sovereignty of God in this world, all right, and in our lives. Deuteronomy, or not Deuteronomy, Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. This is after Nebuchadnezzar had went on his rooftop. You know, Daniel, he had received a dream, and the dream was ultimately, hey, uh, you're going to be turned out to be a beast uh, for seven years. And so uh, it so happened, uh, as the dream predicted, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went on his rooftop of his castle and he looked out over the kingdom and says, man, what a great, I'm paraphrasing, what a great guy I am, look at all the things that I have accomplished. And in that moment, God decree, declared to him what the dream had declared to him and sent him out, took, took his mind away from him, and he became like a beast of the field, and he ate grass, his hair grew long, his nails grew long. Um, and for seven years, he lived like that until he came to his senses. And this is what Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35 pick up. He comes to his senses. He says, at the end of the days, at the end of those seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Right? God does what he wills to happen in this world in the universe, and in time and space in humanity. And listen to this, this, this phrase. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We can't change what God's going to do. We can't change what God has done. And we now have no right to question what God is doing or what God has done. He is the sovereign, and he is unfolding his will in this world. And what we need to do is trust his sovereignty. And then live in light of the fact that we serve a sovereign God and that we can stand faithful with him because we know that he is going to do what is right in this sovereign plan. Listen to Isaiah. He fortifies this as well. Verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has proposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Well, the answer to both of those questions is no one will annul it and no one will turn it back because he is God and he is sovereign and he is unfolding his sovereign will in this world. Uh, Job 9 12. Behold, he, meaning God, stretches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? Well, the answer is no one will say to him, What are you doing? Now, here's a challenging part of this uh, passage, right? For some people, the idea of God's sovereignty is the challenging part of of the passage. Um, but to me, God's sovereignty is a blessing. God's sovereignty is, is a source of hope and strength and faith because I know that no matter what it looks like in this world, that God's working out his will and he's going to bring it to the end that he has predetermined for, uh, to take place in this world, no matter what it looks like. And so, uh, at the end of this thing, he says that he has done this, uh, God has done it, he says in, in verse 14, so that people fear before him. And now we, we, we get kind of ruffled at the idea of fearing before God, right? We don't understand the concept of what it means to fear uh, before God because in one sense, fear means fear, right? Uh, struck with a, a terror. And, and some people have said it like this, you know, hey, in that, in a, in, a, in, a, in some sense of the word, uh, we we could fear in that way because God can snuff us out in an instant, right? He brought us into this world; He can take us out. He gives life; He can take our life away. But the the more broader sense of this idea of fearing the Lord is is born out in this understanding of having a right, reverent respect for who He is, an awe for who He is, His magnitude and His transcendence and His power. 
and his in his grace and all the things that incorporate the character and the attributes of God is to have a right reverent respect for the Lord. And now one of one of the most powerful things to me about this this fear of the Lord, as a matter of fact, Solomon's going to come to the conclusion, the the very end of this book, the ultimate conclusion he's going to come to in, in uh, chapter twelve, verse thirteen is uh, having heard everything, he says. In other words, going through all of this experiment, the ins and outs of everything, not leaving one stone unturned, having heard everything, he says, I have reached this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandment because this is the whole duty of man. So Solomon even says, hey, this is the ultimate conclusion. Fear God and live in obedience to God. So what does it mean to fear God in, in, a, in a real sense of the word? And we've done a, we've done a series um, a year or so ago in, at Friendship Baptist Church in uh, Proverbs. It was, it was a short series through the first nine or ten chapters. Uh, called it the Gospel According to Proverbs. And the, the Proverbs, the thesis statement in Proverbs is, is verse 7, really, in chapter 1, that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, <coughs> or excuse me, the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So that's the thesis statement. And here's an interesting thing for you to do, and, and I'm going to trace it through for, with you uh, here through, you know, maybe six, six verses uh, in Proverbs. But trace that thread through the book of Proverbs and find everything, uh, every time you see that phrase, the fear of the Lord. And see what those verses say about the fear of the Lord. And you'll come away with this awesome understanding of what it means and what the fear of the Lord brings. So this right, reverent understanding of who God is. So again, uh, verse chapter 2 is the next instance that this term uh, appears, at least in this, uh, the, the English phrase, the fear of the Lord appears uh, in the ESV, I put it that way. Uh, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So this fear of the Lord, this right, reverent understanding of God ultimately leads to knowledge and wisdom. So if you want to have knowledge and wisdom, and Solomon's already told us, that, hey, I've went, through, I've went through life trying to find meaning merely in wisdom and in folly and madness. And he says, hey, when it's all said and done, apart from God, it's all vanity, but there's still more value in wisdom than in madness and folly. But if you want to find true wisdom and you want to have true knowledge, then it only comes from God, right? And so we ought to pursue God. We ought to have a right, reverent relation, uh, uh, respect for God. We ought to fear God in that sense. That is the beginning of knowledge, right, and wisdom. So in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 13, Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Now, now we starting, we're starting to see where this thread is going to take us. This is a foreshadowing of my favorite verse in Proverbs as it relates to this idea of the fear of the Lord. If you want to obey God, if you want to follow after God, you want, it starts with this fear of the Lord. And what is this fear of the Lord going to do? It's going to cause you to hate evil like God hates evil. You will no longer love sin and evil, not your own or anybody else's. You will hate sin as God hates sin. That'll be a mark that you have a right reverent fear of the Lord. So it goes on. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and, uh, and perverted speech I hate. Then verse four, or chapter 14, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Well, if you want to have life in the fullest, where do you find it? You find it in the fear of the Lord. And he goes on to say, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Well, how do we ultimately turn away from the snares of death? Because I'm here to tell you, unless the Lord comes again in our lifetime, every one of us listening to this will die. One out of one person dies, right? Save two, two that we read about in Scripture, Enoch and Elijah, right? Every other human being that you ever read about in history, every other human being that you know, and if the Lord continues to tarry, they will die. So the only way to ultimately find the fountain of life and to uh, escape or turn away from the snares of death 
is to find a relationship with God. And that comes with a right reverent fear of Almighty God. It comes from the New Testament perspective through this relationship with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> then uh, Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Now again, one of the things that we made this we made this contention in Proverbs, when you read things like that where it says, "Hey, you'll you'll never be visited by harm," in Proverbs, we need to look at Proverbs. Every proverb is not a promise. Okay, doesn't mean that's a guarantee. It's a general rule. But there's always this eschatological aspect to it, right? Because the ultimate way that we escape harm is what? Because we know we're all going to die. In, in some sense, that's harm to the human body in a physical sense, right? The, the body withers up and dies or um, dies suddenly because of some tragedy or some illness or disease. But all of it involves some sense of harm. The only way to escape that is with a relationship with God. The only way for us to escape harm ultimately is in the eschaton. Even if we die, we ultimately escape all harm because God makes us right in the end, right? But again, where do we find this life, this, this true life, this eternal life? Where do we find this satisfaction in the midst of the chaos of this world we live in? We find it in the fear of the Lord. And then here's my favorite verse, and I, I, I skipped it and put it at the last on purpose. Because this is the gospel in a nutshell in the book of Proverbs. You want to see the gospel in the Old Testament? Well, here it is. It doesn't specifically speak of Jesus, but it speaks of God and the fear of the Lord. Listen to what it says. Proverbs 16, verse 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Well, if that's not the gospel, I don't know what it is. By steadfast love, God's hesed, for God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, John chapter 3, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. By God's steadfast love, we love him because he first loved us. God demonstrated his love, how? By giving his son. God loves us, and he demonstrated that through faithfulness. Being faithful to his plan from the very beginning that the second person of the Trinity would step out of heaven and step into humanity and bear for us the guilt, the penalty, and appease the wrath of God uh, regarding the sin and the guilt that we have because of our sinfulness. And it is through this steadfast love of God, this faithfulness of God, that iniquity is toned for in Christ Jesus. And it is by the fear of the Lord that one turns away from evil. So that fear of the Lord ultimately leads us to faith, right? It ultimately leads us to faith in God and faith in the promise of God. And so I think, you know, in a, round, in a, in a very veiled way, Solomon is pointing to the same person who wrote Ecclesiastes, wrote Proverbs. Solomon is pointing us to that truth, that this fear of the Lord ultimately is where we find satisfaction in the here and now, and it's where we find meaning in the here and now, but it's also where we find that eternal life and that eternal joy and eternal glory that we have with the Father in Christ Jesus. And then he rounds this out in uh, verse 15. He says, That which is already has been has been. That which is to be already has been. Almost sounds like what we already read in chapter 1. Uh, I think it was. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Uh, what's already happened has happened. We keep doing the same things over and over again in, in, in humanity. Uh, it kind of sounds like the same thing. And then there's a strange part of this verse at the end. And God seeks what has been driven away. The ESV renders it that way. And, and again, what, what in the world is Solomon trying to tell us in that verse? Well, again, this is one of those that has a varied understanding and interpretation or translation, I put it that way, from the Hebrew. If you look at the ESV that we just read, God seeks what has been driven away. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, you read this, God requireth that which is past. Those are very similar, right? Because it's as if he's looking at the past. He's, he's looking toward the past. And there's something to be said for that because what is in the ultimate past, right? In the ultimate past, as it relates to creation, was a perfect creation before the fall that had no curse. And maybe that's what Solomon's looking toward. 
or, or meaning or has in mind when he says God seeks what has been driven away. What's been driven away? Well, the perfection that God created this world in was driven away because of the fall of man and because of sin and curse. God brought a curse on this earth because of the sinfulness of man. And we know from the New Testament that even the earth groans uh, as in labor pains, waiting for the, the redemption of even the, the, the universe and the world. And God's going to rectify the curse in the end by destroying this planet and recreating this planet and creating a new heaven and a new earth that become the united dwelling place of God and his people in the eschaton. But there are other, uh, other translations. The, again, the Lexham English Bible says God will do what he has done. So they, they look at it in light of the first part of the verse which says what's already been done is you know what's what already that which is already has been done that which is to be already has been done so it's talking about the faithfulness of God <coughs> again kind of goes back to this idea of the sovereignty of God that God's going to continue to do and be faithful and do the things that God does in this world in that sense we can we can trust him that's a valid reality of scripture right I don't know that that's what Solomon is saying uh, right now, I'm leaning either toward this idea that God is, that Solomon's pointing us to the ultimate uh, eschatological end of things, that God's going to going to right the wrong of the curse in this world uh, when Christ comes again. But there is also something to be said uh, about the faithfulness that God's going to continue to be faithful and do as long as there's seed time and harvest, right? Uh, we've, we've seen those things already. Uh, the new the New English translation or the Net Bible says God will seek to do again what has occurred in the past, and so again God's going to continue to be faithful and do. That's their understanding of it. God will call the past to account. Now that's an interesting one. That's from the NIV. Uh, God's going to call the past to account. Well, there's something to be said about that in the context of Solomon or of Ecclesiastes as a whole. Because what are we going to learn in the very end of this, in chapter 12? That God's going to judge every idle word. And there is this thread of judgment, obviously, through God's word, where God's going to call everything to account one day. And all of us will stand before uh, the judgment seat of Christ and be judged for the things that we have done, right? Uh, and then uh, all of those whose names are found and written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be ushered into the presence of the Lord for all of eternity, and those whose names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into uh, the lake of fire, which is the second death, as Revelation 20 <coughs> reminds us of. But I really think, and if you just want to know my opinion, I, and again, I'm not, I'm not hardline on this by any stretch of the imagination at this point, uh, but my, my gut feeling at this moment, as I've read this passage and I've studied what people have said about this passage and thinking about the context of what Solomon uh, is saying uh, in, in, in this immediate paragraph and in, in the previous paragraph with the thing that there's a time for everything and everything has a season and God's made everything beautiful in his time and uh, talking about the fear of the Lord and you know that leads us to this idea of the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God and what he's doing in this world what he's done nobody can take away and nobody can add to if you take all of that into context it seems as though that this passage is giving us two concepts one that God is going to be faithful. He is going to continue to be faithful just like he was in the past. And that ultimately God is going to rectify the curse that came upon this world because of sin. And of course we know that the Bible, uh, the Bible tells us that, right? Uh, in the end. And so that, that's my understanding of that, that particular section. But don't, don't lose sight of what's happening in in Ecclesiastes, because it, it can be pessimistic, it can seem negative all the time, and Solomon says, well, you know, woe is me, what's the use, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, it's all vanities, it's striving after, the grasping after the wind, it's, you know, the shadow boxing, there's no meaning to it, but what Solomon is really challenging us to do is to, is to come to the conclusion he's, he's giving us in this section, that the only true, real, lasting meaning in life comes with a relationship with the Lord. And in the Old Testament way, he says that that happens with the fear of the Lord. When a person has a right, reverent understanding and respect of the Lord, that leads them to faith in the promise of God, faith in the sovereign will of God. 
And so the question before you tonight and before me is, do we have that faith in God? Do we have that faith in, 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 in our greater revelation of the New Testament? The object of that faith, in particular, is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is God manifest in the flesh, and he came to deal with the curse of sin once and for all. And we find our, our reconciliation with God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So tonight, do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to that place where you bowed your knee to the will of God in Christ Jesus? That you believe he is who he said he is and that he could do what he said he could do. With the, with, with the Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's where Solomon's driving us. And if you haven't come there yet, don't let this sun go down today before you come to the place where you give your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So. That is my spiel for tonight. Again, we'll put this up. It's already going to be on YouTube and Facebook if this worked like it's supposed to work. Uh, and, and you guys can leave me comments and let me know uh, what you think about that. And the more we go, the more I'll get familiar with this and be able to share some things and, and stuff like that. So uh, leave your comments and your input on, on this new setup that we're doing. And go to YouTube and like it. And go to uh, Rumble when I upload that and, and like it and share it and all the things you need to do. Hit the buttons and subscribe subscribe and stuff and go find the podcast uh and like and share and subscribe to it as well and hey if you're in uh elmore county area uh and you need a, in a good church home if you need a place where we teach god's word chapter by chapter verse by verse we don't we don't give you some trite um you know feel good um you know speech every sunday morning we proclaim the truth of god's word uh in such a way that it challenges us to know more about who he is and to live in light of what it is that we know about him and i encourage you to come to friendship baptist church and to join us as we endeavor to be and do what god's called us to be and do and hey, just another commercial we we our our focus is we're, we're, we don't we don't care to be like everybody else okay we're not a cookie cutter mold of every other church that you see and we don't care to be that way okay we we as a, as a christian community need to understand that there is a war in our culture that there's a war a spiritual war a spiritual battle that's going on in this world around us it's been going on from the creation right from the beginning from the fall it's been going on and the enemy, for all of my lifetime, has attacked the nuclear family. That's, that's, been, that's been the spearhead of his attack, the nuclear family. And he continues to do that today. What do you think all of the, all of the alphabet mafia stuff is all about? It's about attacking and tearing down the concept of the nuclear family, which is God's created order from the very beginning. And so here's what we want to be at Friendship Baptist Church. We want to be a place where we help fathers understand that your family is under attack, that your children are under attack. And we want to help equip you to be ready for the battle that is going on right now. You are on the front lines. It's not that you will be on the front lines. If you're a father or a mother, uh, you are on the front lines. And we want to be a place where we can, we can equip one another to be ready for the battle that is facing our children and facing our culture. And we want to equip young men and young women who are not yet married to be ready so that when they get married and have children, that they will understand that that battle is already waging. And they have been equipped to deal with the battle that's around them. They know how to, to walk in faith in Christ. And they know how to disciple their family to do the same. That's the kind of place that we want to be, right? We, we want to worship the Lord and honor the Lord. We want to focus on the gospel of Christ and, and share the truth of God's word. And we want to equip families to be what it is that God has called in to be. That's how we turn this nation around, if you want to know the truth of it. That's how we, the greatest mission field in this world is your family. That's the greatest mission field in this world. Yes, we need people to go overseas. We need people to go into all the world, right? Pantata ethnos, to make disciples of all people groups. We need that. But I'm here to tell you, for the, for the majority of us as Christians, 
God has called us to be faithful in the place he has planted us, and he has planted us right smack dab in the middle of our family. And he wants us to be faithful there and to be equipped to fight the battle that this culture is waging against our family. And it's, and it's our desire to help you do that. So if you're looking for a place like that, then, hey, come join us, right? Not a whole lot of flash, not a whole lot of flair, right? Uh, not, not a whole lot of motivational speaking. And this is, this, is, this is about us understanding who God is, why it is that we need a Savior, and what Christ has done to bring reconciliation, and us bowing our will and our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that changing our life, and we being equipped to be obedient to Him as we begin our discipleship process in our own home, and then that spills over as we go in our workplace, wherever it is we go, we always are ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. So anyway, if you're looking for a place like that, Come join us uh, Sunday mornings, 10 to 30, or 9.30, Sunday school, 10.30 for worship. And then Wednesday nights, we're there at 6 o'clock. And so, until next time, uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast.